Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Ah, yes, it is once again time for our weekly look at what I consider to be one of the most interesting cities, not just in America, but in the world. Monopoly City, the city that boasts not only the longest boardwalk in the United States, but just over a century of history. And if you go to Atlantic City and walk any aspect of the 48 blocks, the sense that you get is that this town has a history and a future. And we spend a lot of time talking about its present and what's going on there now and what's happening next week, next month, next year. But uh, our guest this week has done an incredible job chronicling Atlantic City's history. He's a professor of history and the director of the American Studies program at Temple University. He's also the author of Boardwalk Dreams. Gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome Bryant Simon. Bryant, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Thanks for having me. So what sparked talking about Atlantic City? And I love reading your work on Atlantic City. I am curious, though, you are, you know, a pretty respected academic and historian. You could write about anything. What sparked (laughs) your interest in Atlantic City initially? Well, I, I did not grow up in Atlantic City, nor have I actually ever lived in Atlantic City. But I am from South Jersey and I grew up kind of in the orbit of Atlantic City, um, I say this in my book, um, my parents took me to Atlantic City to buy my bar mitzvah suit. (laughs) And then later, while I was in graduate school, my family bought a house in Ventnor. And we would get up every morning and ride our bikes on the boardwalk. And it was really those rides on the boardwalk from Ventnor to the end of the boardwalk in Atlantic City that kind of hooked me. I I wanted to make sense of the place. Um, You talked about it. You walk around there, and it's an endlessly fascinating place, but it's also kind of inscrutable, right? I mean, it's not, it's not easy to figure out why things are the way they are, and that really was what I wanted to understand, why the city became the way it was, what its past really looked like, mm. and to connect those dots for myself and, and, and readers. You, you write in the book that in the first half of the 20th century, Atlantic City was sort of a boom town. It was one of the most popular middle-class resorts and vacation de- uh, destinations. Obviously, I, I refer to it as Monopoly City. It was the basis for the board game of Monopoly. It was the home of the Miss America pageant. It was a place that people would talk about literally around the world. But by the late 60s, r- before gambling came to town, it had become the very definition of urban decay and blight. I've often wondered this about countries like Venezuela that go from just being uh, top of the heap to being, um, you know, basically mired in poverty. But how does it happen in a city like Atlantic City? What happened in the 20th century to see Atlantic City first doing so well and then doing so poorly? Yeah, and I think we, we should start with that so well part. Um Atlantic City, in many ways, was Disneyland before there was Disneyland. And and in that sense, different from Coney Island, really the first great middle-class resort 
in the United States. And in 1932, at the height of the Depression, Atlantic City attracted 16 million visitors a year, which is pretty phenomenal if you think about it. It's amazing. And, you know, so it would weather the storm of the Great Depression and actually the challenges of World War II and emerge in the 1950s, you know, perhaps stronger than ever. But the the signs of, of decline were happening even in the 1950s. And some people would argue that, that Atlantic City sort of falters because people start taking airplanes and they start taking cruises. And I think that misses some of the dynamic of what was happening in Atlantic City. And so if you go back to that heyday of Atlantic City, it was the place that you went if you were maybe a first or second generation immigrant to show that you had made it in America. And you know a lot about the city. I mean, it was a place where you deliberately dressed up, where you went to see and be seen. And that fantasy of making it in America was really important to the city. But part of that fantasy was built on exclusion. Some people were kept out. And and most notably, those were black people to a certain extent. And, you know, part of what happens in Atlantic City is in the post-war period, it is unable to segregate in the same way. It's unable to keep out people. It's unable to maintain its dress codes. It's unable to maintain its kind of appearance of upward mobility. And and then it doesn't do the trick for people anymore. It can't show that you've made it anymore by going there. And people show they've made it by going other places, most notably, right, to the Disney properties become for a while a place that you can show you've made it. Others retreat to more kind of less urban kind of resorts. And, and I think that's another thing really important. Atlantic City's heyday is, is, is also the heyday of the city, uh, a celebration of the city. And, you know, by the post-war period, we're really celebrating the exclusions, the kind of retreat, the control over your own property that the suburbs entail. And Atlantic City wasn't a place for that. And so I think these kind of bigger changes, I don't know about the Venezuela comparison, but that these bigger changes in American urban life and American political life and American racial life really reverberate in Atlantic City in ways that, that make it hard for the city to do well anymore. And what you see happening at the same time is more less urban resorts avalon i mean if if we're talking south jersey wildwood they do well during this period and asbury park in atlantic city really struggled during this period as, as the kind of more urban resorts in the state now and um then obviously everyone saw the problems with atlantic city and uh I think everyone recognized the need to help Atlantic City reclaim some of its lost luster, even if they weren't about to bring back segregation in order to do so. And um, that was one of the driving forces behind the uh, push for legalized casino gambling happened. uh, They tried for a referendum once, didn't work out. Then uh, finally it uh, it did happen. And it's been the case for uh, about a half a century now. How did uh, Atlantic City do with legalized gambling, and how did the promises of legalized gambling advocates come to fruition once it was implemented? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a kind of, it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing story, right? The referendum fails the first time, and then it goes a second time, and, and the people in favor of it 
figure out a pretty clever thing. They they say that many of the profits from the casinos will go to paying the um, heating bills of the elderly. Remember, this is the 1970s, right? Right, right in the middle of the oil crunch, right? Yeah, so it was sounds kind of, familiar. It, yeah, yeah, it was kind of like a, it was a kind of good move politically, but that initial referendum also said that casino gambling would be quote, a unique tool for urban renewal in Atlantic City. And literally, on, it was like an icy cold night in November 1976 when it passed. People danced on the boardwalk. They felt like the past was going to come back. And I think the first weekend of gambling in Atlantic City, which was Memorial Day, um, so the, I'm sorry, the referendum passed in 75. The casino opens in Memorial Day 1976. And... Um, there's a restaurant, I tell this story in my book, where Italian restaurants just off the boardwalk where they they, they cook for days. You know, they, they have endless trays of baked ziti. They think they're going to get rich again, and nobody comes. What, what they failed to recognize was that casinos themselves were kind of not very good drivers of urban renewal because mm. the, the point of a casino is to lure people inside and to take all their money. You don't want them to have discretionary income to go see a movie, to go see an acted steel pier, to buy, you know, an right. antique. You, vase, you want, you want you know, them to spend all that money at the blackjack table or at the craps table. Yeah, and you, you essentially want them not to even know the city exists, right? right? I mean, that's the whole. And so, essentially, Atlantic City adopts a model for urban renewal. That was a fundamentally anti-urban device, mm. right? Like, you know, the appeal of cities and the appeal is to be out and to be amongst people, to have a d- diversity of experience, to see things you can't see where you normally are. And the casinos, that's not what they wanted to happen. And so that restaurant, actually, the Monday of Memorial Day weekend, finds itself throwing out all this food it made. And it was in some ways a harbinger of what was going to happen. The casinos would prosper. I mean, it was a rocky road, but they would prosper. And as you probably know, they've, they've actually done really well in the last six months, returning to their pre-pandemic levels of um, revenue. But the rest of the city really struggled um, from 1975 forward. And in some ways struggled more than it had, had even before casinos came. Well, that's interesting, right? Uh, You chronicle in your book that uh, at the time, even with all these casinos that uh, that were out there making money at the time that your book came out, there was not a single movie theater in a city that had tens of thousands of people, and there was thirty-five million visitors a year. Amazing, like. Absolutely amazing. Vegas for a while. And and now, um, and you write that the one grocery store that they had was a fortress. Now, currently, there are zero grocery stores. And the only movie theater that I'm aware of anyway is in a casino in the the Tropicana, unless there's another one. Um, Have you seen since sort of the reawakening of Atlantic City 10 years ago when five casinos closed within the same year? And, you know, I think it was a cold shower to a lot of the uh, market makers, the city planners, the city government, the state government, that they needed to diversify beyond just casino gambling. Have you seen the city move in that direction in the last decade? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's been been a struggle, as you know. It it has not been a, a kind of clear path forward. I think some of the more interesting things going on are some of the things, again, that are going on in other cities, and that is 
a bit of an edge and meds revival. The hospital has grown. And to me, the really interesting thing is what's going to happen. And, and I don't know how much your listeners know. The biggest university along the coast in South Jersey is Stockton University. And Stockton built a dorm and opened some classrooms right on the boardwalk on Albany Avenue where the high school used to be. And that was a dead zone for the casinos. And it's certainly a dead zone after the Hilton went out of business. I don't know. Like, I think that might be one of the things that could help drive some of the resurgence of Atlantic City to diversify the economy, to have people there all the time. Students are there all the time. So is that happening? It has not happened. I mean, it's a crazy thing. Like, there's a bar for sale not far from there. Um, which I thought, you know, someone was going to buy, right, and turn it into a college bar, right? And no one's done it. I don't know enough right now about what's going on in the real estate markets. I mean, I do know that property taxes are really high in Atlantic City, and, and it's held back some, you know, residential purchases, people buying second homes and stuff like that, because it's really hard to maintain a property there um, without income. The Stockton thing is there. Students are living there, but it hasn't created a lot of rollover mm. industries. The other place, I mean, I think that's really interesting is there's been a little bit of small business growth along Tennessee Avenue and New York Avenue. And New sure. York Avenue was the old gay strip in town, which was really vibrant. Like, it's kind of an interesting story. When the city declines in the 70s, it becomes for about 10 years this interesting gay mecca, um, including winning a really important legal battle in the, in the um, fight for gay rights in, Atlanta, in New Jersey. There's been some investment there of small businesses, but I don't know. I mean, it sounds like you go to Atlantic City some. Have you have you gone there? I don't I, like none of my friends are hanging out there. So, so I, I don't. Yeah. But no. And the, and the walk is done all right. You know, so so how do you figure out a strategy build around those various things? I mean, like one of the things I had long wanted to see was an attempt to repopulate Atlantic City. And I thought that mm. one of the ways to do so was to really try and create high-speed rail between Atlantic City and Philadelphia and kind of make it a commuter, almost a commuter town to Philadelphia. If you could get that train ride under an hour, you were, you know, kind of within the bounds of a, of a reasonable commute. And the train lets you off in a place pretty centrally in Philadelphia. Once you're in Atlantic City, you could, you know, it'd be a really pleasant place to live. If you had enough people there, you could begin to build up a kind of commercial infrastructure. Nobody, you know, there wasn't the political will to do it. I don't think the casino industry, which kind of in some ways runs the city, um, was particularly interested. I don't think the political establishment in Atlantic City was particularly interested in that idea because the money was there during, you know, there was some rail money available during the Obama years. But and obviously there's some money available, I mean, I assume during the Biden years, but nobody really latched down onto that idea. And I, and I think that that what it speaks to is Atlantic City also thrived when it was both a resort town and a residential community. Mm. When it had a, in the past 50 years, it's only focused on the resort part of the economy. And that means that the, the kinds of infrastructure of a place that you want to live doesn't exist. But, but what people don't realize is, as a tourist, you want to see that as well. You don't right. want to drive into a town that looks like a commercial ghost town. It's right. not inviting, right? You yeah. want to hide in the casinos. And I think that sense of that relationship I don't know why, but but it's not been at the tip of 
the kind of agenda of the policymakers in Atlantic City. And again, I would say just not just to sort of finish this point for a long time, the people who were always thinking of solutions to Atlantic City were the same. They were people committed to casino growth and they were committed to the idea that casinos would be the engine and that their profits would trickle down to the rest of the city. And it, it kind of like didn't matter how long that didn't happen. They held on to that faith. And they all, at the same time, retained a lot of power to shape the agenda of the city. And I think there was several missed opportunities along the way because the same way of thinking just prevailed again and again and again. Well, I mean, that's a great observation. And you said a lot there that uh, that I hadn't considered, but all of which makes perfect sense. And if people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, Bryant Simon. He's a history professor at Temple and the author of the book Boardwalk of Dreams, Atlantic City and the Fate of Urban America. So it, it sounds like the the goals of Atlantic City in itself, as weird as this sounds, the goals of Atlantic City itself as a city and the casinos, uh, the nine that are thriving in Atlantic City right now, they're sort of at odds uh, because the casinos are doing whatever they can to keep people in their buildings spending money there, whereas for Atlantic City to thrive, you really need people expanding even beyond the casinos. I mean, I think there's an inherent contradiction there. Um, I mean, it doesn't mean that some casino owners haven't been a little better at this and a little bit more understanding of the city. But it's interesting when, when you know, and it's not to pick on Donald Trump, because I actually think Trump did some interesting things in Atlantic City um, to, before, before he left. But, you know, Trump complained about a lot of things about Atlantic City, and he wanted access roads and got into fights with Steve Wynn about Mm -hmm, these access mm -hmm. roads. But interestingly enough, Trump never complained about crime in Atlantic City. Something, right, he did in New York. Right, um, that's right. Something he did as president. He he understood the political value of it and also understand why it mattered. And why didn't he? Because I think he understood that that was in his interest. Because he wanted people afraid of street crime in Atlantic City so they wouldn't be walking around. They'd dine at the Taj Mahal and the Trump Marina and the Trump Plaza. Exactly. Interesting. I mean, I don't even like I don't know. Like, I mean, I obviously don't have any documents to demonstrate this, but but it was interesting. The casino owners did not collectively press the city very often about crime. And why not? They built parking decks that stretched further and further towards the Atlantic City Expressway, often acting almost as suction cups. They took those cars and they walked people over the city on walkways. You know, that makes, if you think about it, that makes perfect economic sense for them. Right. Uh, No, it's a great point. And the thing that you mentioned about Philadelphia and the, how there should be a high-speed rail link from Philadelphia to Atlantic City, the thing that I'm struck by as you say that is there was a very convenient rail link from uh, Manhattan to Atlantic City. I think it was called the Ace Train. And they they did whatever they could to market it on both sides uh, of the uh, Hudson River. And for whatever reason, there just wasn't enough interest in sustaining it, and it closed. I mean, you can still uh, take mass transit from New York to Atlantic City, but it doesn't have anywhere near the convenience that that ACE train did. I I am wondering, though, you mentioned Ventnor. I I spent a lot of time in Ventnor, and it's a pretty affluent area, and so is Brigantine, and so is Margate, and so are a lot of the other municipalities in Atlantic County. Why... why isn't the population in those places essentially able to make up for the uh, the shortfall in residential population that Atlantic City has? 
the public transit question, just to get back to it, that rail link to Atlantic City hasn't existed in a long time. And interestingly enough, I think that rail link has really helped Asbury Park. It, it has made Asbury Park a destination in the last 20 years for people without a ton of money, you know, for, for kind of expensive short towns, a ton of money, to find a place to go in the summer. You know, it's not the Hamptons, but you can still get there on public transportation. I, you know, I, I don't know. That rail line, I think, doesn't exist anymore all the way to Atlantic City. But I might be wrong about that. It's, it's, I don't think it's, it doesn't run anymore. You know, why did those places do better? Well, I think they did a couple of things really obviously. I mean, we'll, we'll go to Margate for a second. The boardwalk ends in Ventnor. And Margate, which has higher real estate values, um, the further you get away from Atlantic City on that barrier island, the property values go up, which will tell you something, right? I mean, it's interesting. The only place that you can afford to buy something is Atlantic City, where no one apparently wants to live. Well, then you can't afford to pay property taxes, right? right? Um, And I think what happened is essentially they were trying to barricade themselves off from Atlantic City. Atlantic City Mm. represented problems that they didn't want in their community. And Margate has fought against extending the boardwalk all the way to Margate. Well, why? I mean, I, and, and some people are really, they're speaking in a kind of coded language. They don't want people from Atlantic City who they code as not the right kind of people right. for their community. Yeah, and that's code language for black people. Yeah, yeah. They resisted motels, right? They did some really aggressive kinds of zoning, right, that, that we've watched across the country to keep Atlantic City out, you know, keep the high rises only on the boardwalk, um, keep them condominiums, really limit hotels. And I think that they have been somewhat successful in doing that. But again, you know, if you go back kind of towards the bay in Ventnor, there's some not particularly expensive real estate back there. And that was a lot of casino workers. And for a while, I think the city had a little trouble. I mean, there were a lot of homes that were um, multi-unit. And interesting enough, a lot of those got wiped out by Sandy. A lot of more basement apartments. And there's been a little bit of a push in real estate values in Ventnor as a result of that. Less rentals, more people buying homes. But also, it's easier to get around. I mean, it's the Atlantic City's density that, that is necessary, right, in order to have nine casinos. The moment you get past Albany Avenue... It's a little harder to get around. Like, you can ride your bike anywhere in Ventnor or Margate. It's hard to ride a bike in Atlantic City. Um, there's not bike lanes. I mean, it, they don't make the transition. Part of what I'm su- suggesting is you were asking why they can't prop up Atlantic City. I think the scale of Atlantic City is too big for mm-hmm. those towns to prop up. I mean, they're built for mass audiences. They're built for millions of tourists, not, you know, another 10,000 on the weekend, but it has a different feel because of that. And it's not accessible in the same way. I mean, I have to kind of gear up. I think I told you in an email, I spent a lot of time in Ventnor in the summer and going to Atlantic City, you know, you got to drive kind of, you got to gear up, you got to find a place to park. It doesn't have Ventnor, Margate, Longport have a little bit more of a kind of easy summer beach feel to them. And I think some people like that, but I also think it was manufactured in a way to keep it that Mm. way and to keep some people out, right? Yeah, uh, very, very interesting. And we're talking with Brian Simon. You could check out his book, uh, Boardwalk Dreams, which uh, I think might be due for a sequel sometime soon because (laughs) there's been a lot of things happening in Atlantic City. Um, I, I completely agree with the people that are doing the most to benefit non-casino Atlantic City, 
aside from the hospital sector and the educational sector, are the folks in the so-called Orange Loop, Tennessee Avenue, New York Avenue, and St. James Place. And uh, I've had a lot of those folks on this show, and I've told them privately and on the radio that I love what they're doing. But given all the limitations that you've set, all the logistical hurdles that you've cited in your book and, you know, in the last 15 minutes, do you see any reason to be optimistic about Atlantic City's future? Whether you're a resident, whether you're a business owner, or just somebody like me that enjoys going there, do you see any reason to be bullish on Atlantic City? I think there are a couple of reasons to be bullish. And I'm not necessarily, you know, I think I might put further down the list what's going on. I like how you the, the orange properties. I think the reasons to be bullish are one, Atlantic City's history. It's been a pretty resilient place. It's been, people have read its obituaries numerous times and it's defied those those readings. So I think there's something to be bullish about about that. I think the second thing that to be bullish about is the boardwalk to me, and I suspect to you and many of your listeners, is still one of the really great places in the world. Um, it's one of the, and there's something really wonderful about it and no other place has it. And I think the tourist part of Atlantic City needs to lean into that experience and the casinos didn't, so they need to figure out a way to coexist and create a boardwalk. I mean, you can see it functioning and working in Ocean City. Now, I mean, that might be a whole other interview to talk about what makes Ocean City work and what's, but it works because that space is just there's something about it that that's intoxicating and magical. And I don't know, you know, when I walk up on the boardwalk, I feel like I'm in a different space, and it's different from being. It's some secluded beach town. There's something about the publicness and energy of it. So I think that that asset is still there. Now what Atlantic City needs is something that it's in some ways always had a shortage of, which is creativity and leadership. And that I'm not, you know, wildly optimistic about. I, I don't follow Atlantic City politics as much as I used to, though the last few weeks have led. Uh, you know, I, there's no, there's not a great reason to be optimistic on that front. But I think kind of leaning into that space still has value. And, you know, people want to be at the beach. They want yeah. to be at the shore. They want and, – and that bit of real estate still has value. It's still it's still only 60 miles from Philadelphia. Yep. And um, – uh, and uh, not far, or just a little longer than that from New York. So, I mean, they are situated in a great place. Uh, I'm way over here, but I have to ask you this. I don't know that there's any yeah. city like Atlantic City, even either currently or in its history. But how can other cities that have had great histories, that whether they're large cities like New York or even uh, mid or small size cities, maybe even cities like Philadelphia, how can they avoid the same fate as Atlantic City, whereas they were once the toast of the East Coast to now being uh, a cautionary tale to urban planners in other places. What's the number one thing that cities need to avoid if they want to avoid the worst aspect of Atlantic City's history? Yeah, I think, well, one is they need to not build casinos as the Mm. driver. Like, I've always been amazed that, you know, since Atlantic City, cities continue to build casinos as drivers of economic activity. So I think what you need to do is to remember that what made cities great in the past is the combination of residential and business and that density, having people out on the streets, 
having people, places where people to go is what drives urban growth. It's what makes cities great. It's what makes why we want to be in them. And to sort of avoid the seduction really of the 90s and early part of the 2000s of the big ticket item like the casino, the convention center, which takes up fundamental space in the middle of a city, but does very little to enhance the kind of everyday architecture of the city. And I think that the cautionary tale cities need to avoid the kind of get rich quick bring suburbanites in, take their money before they leave, and that can create economic growth. From a baseball stadium to convention center to a casino, I think we've seen again and again, that's not the model. The model is organic growth, small businesses combined with with some sort of steady employment, and to figure out how to nurture that. Um, And so essentially to take what's going on in the orange properties and multiply it by the 48 other blocks across the city. How often do you get to Atlantic City these days, Brian? Um, I'll be there tomorrow. Like, I mean, I will literally take the train and walk to Ventnor. Um, so I go, I, I spend probably two or three months a year in Ventnor, and mm. most of those days at some point I will be in Atlantic City. If you had to pick, and uh, I always try and give people, if nothing else, a few good restaurant recommendations, your favorite restaurant in Atlantic City, doesn't matter if it's in a casino or in a hotel or outside of one, if you had to pick, what would you pick? That's easy, the White House. White House sub shop, world, (laughs) a perfect answer. Hey, uh, Brian, thank you so much for the time this morning. Hopefully I'll see you down there over the course of the summer. And uh, if not, I'll I'll see you on the radio soon, I hope. Okay, enjoyed it. Take care. Thank you. If people want to check out the book, it's Boardwalk of Dreams, Atlantic City, and the Fate of Urban America. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, our number, 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.